You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. War floating... A fishing campaign pursues Ukrainian and Polish targets. Pakistan's navy is under cyber attack. A new criminal threat actor uses screenshots for recon. ESI ARGS is widespread, but its effects are still being assessed. The UK and US issue joint sanctions against Russian ransomware operators. Robert M. Lee from Dragos addresses attacks on electrical substations. Our guest is Denny Lecomte from Portnox, discussing IoT security segmentation strategies. And is Lockbit next on law enforcement's wanted list? From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, February 9th, 2023. Examination of debris from the Chinese balloon the U.S. Air Force shot down off Myrtle Beach earlier this week continues, but the U.S. State Department has announced that the balloon was a surveillance system. The New York Times reports that it was a floating collection platform. Specifically, it was engaged in collection of signals intelligence, a capability that became known to the U.S. before the balloon was shot down and its wreckage recovered. Close flyby inspections by U-2 aircraft were able to determine that the Chinese system was set up for SIGINT as the balloon made its leisurely way from Montana to South Carolina. The U.S. statement said the balloon's payload included antenna arrays likely capable of collecting and geolocating communications, and the craft packed enough solar panels to drive a large set of electronic sensors. All of this, the U.S. pedantically explained, was clearly for intelligence surveillance and inconsistent with the equipment on board weather balloons. The State Department rather legalistically and humorlessly observed that any company that made and operated the balloon was surely closely connected with the Chinese government. Ukraine's State Service of Special Communication and Information Protection State Cyber Protection Center, we'll just call them the SSSCIP, reports that a Russian cyber espionage campaign is fishing for targets in the Ukrainian and Polish governments. The SSSCIP writes, 
UAC 0114, also known as Winter Vivern, is a group of undefined individuals where Russian-speaking members are present, highly likely, whose activity targets the European government entities. Their recent campaign targeted Ukrainian and Polish government organizations, taking advantage of fake web pages impersonating the legitimate web resources of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine and the Central Cybercrime Bureau of Poland. The adversary TTPs are quite common and known for using email subjects related to malware scanning and benefiting from PowerShell scripts execution. BlackBerry blogged today about a new threat actor they've called News Penguin, seen targeting Pakistani organizations. Using the upcoming Pakistani Navy's International Maritime Expo and Conference as a phishing lure, the actor attaches a malicious document utilizing a remote template injection technique and embedded malicious Visual Basic for Applications macro code to deliver the next stage of the attack, which leads to the final payload execution. The eventual payload contains an XOR-encrypted Penguin encryption key, as well as the content disposition response header name parameter set to get latest news during the HTTP response, both of which contributed to the name given to the actor by the researchers. BlackBerry says, News Penguin is a previously unknown threat actor relying on unseen tooling to target Pakistani users and potential visitors of the Pakistani International Maritime Expo and Conference. There's no attribution so far, but BlackBerry thinks that News Penguin's motivation is espionage and not profit. Proofpoint reported yesterday on the activities of a threat actor they're tracking as TA-866. They call the activity, first observed in October of last year, screen time, and Proofpoint says it starts with an email containing a malicious attachment or URL and leads to malware that Proofpoint dubbed Wasabi Seed and Screenshotter. In some cases, Proofpoint observed post-exploitation activity involving AHKBot and Rhadamanthus Steeler. Proofpoint designates TA-866 as an organized actor able to perform efficient and effective tasks given the resources at the group's disposal. A new version of the ESXi ARGS ransomware appears to prevent data recovery via flat files. Bleeping Computer reports that a second wave of the ransomware campaign began yesterday and that ESXi-ARGS developers have updated the malware to encrypt flat files. This means that the data recovery script released by CISA will likely no longer work on servers infected with the updated version of ESI-ARGS. Bleeping Computer adds that servers infected earlier may still be recoverable by using CISA's tool. CISA yesterday issued a guide for using the script. The Washington Post notes that the ESI ARGS campaign appears to have had a somewhat muted impact compared to earlier widespread ransomware or pseudo-ransomware campaigns, such as WannaCry or NotPetya. Italy's National Cybersecurity Agency says, according to Reuters, that it's unclear who's behind the campaign. In particular, there's no obvious involvement of a state actor. This morning, the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control and the U.K.'s National Crime Agency jointly sanctioned seven members of a gang that's operating the TrickBot malware. The individuals sanctioned are also involved with the Conti and Ryuk ransomware strains. The National Crime Agency says 
The seven cyber criminals are now subject to travel bans and asset freezes and are severely restricted in their use of the global financial system. The U.S. Treasury Department drew particular attention to the way the Russian government has long provided a safe haven for cyber criminals. The U.S. Treasury Department said, in part, Russia is a haven for cyber criminals where groups such as TrickBot freely perpetrate malicious cyber activities against the U.S., the U.K., and allies and partners. These malicious cyber activities have targeted critical infrastructure, including hospitals and medical facilities during a global pandemic in both the U.S. and the U.K. Last month, Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network identified a Russia-based virtual currency exchange, BitsLotto Limited, as a primary money laundering concern in connection with Russian illicit finance. These sanctions represent another action against ransomware, coming as it does on the heels of the international effort to disrupt the operation of Hive. There may be others to follow. CyberScoop reports some informed speculation that Lockbit may be the next high-profile target. The Russian gang tooted its apolitical horn early in Russia's war against Ukraine when many of its criminal colleagues were signing up as cyber auxiliaries for Moscow's organs. Yet it's been functioning effectively as a privateer, objectively at least supporting Russia's war effort. Lockbit's been doing some woofing about the Hive takedown, Representative is a tweet shared via VX Underground in the last week of January, stating, Nice news. I love when FBI pwn my competitors, which is one way of looking at it. But Lockbit's gotten bigger and more irritating, even as it's grown cockier. So good hunting, FBI, Interpol, Europol, NCA, and every police agency in Europe and North America. After the break, Robert M. Lee from Dragos addresses attacks to electrical substations. Our guest is Denny LeCompte from Port Knox, discussing IoT security segmentation strategies. Stick around. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. 
You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. IoT devices giveth and IoT devices taketh away. They can add functionality and convenience, but also expand your organization's attack surface. Denny Lecomte is CEO at security firm Port Knox, and I reached out to him for insights on IoT security segmentation strategies. A lot of these devices are built to be cheap. They are not built to be secure. They're, you know, um, there's a like a manufacturing run. And they will ship these things, and there's maybe no security at all. It's gotten a little better, but if that's from terrible to nearly bad, it's not good at all, right? You've got, you know, devices will be shipped with a blank password, a blank admin password. So if someone were to move into your, somehow get access to your network, they can log onto these things. And some of them are basically Linux computers, so that it is possible for somebody to use that as a, kind of base camp to then make other lateral moves to get to more interesting things. They don't really want your camera, but your camera is a beachhead into your network and they can use that. So it is a, it is a real security threat, and especially just because they are really not built for management the way a laptop or a server um, or firewall is, right? So that's the problem for, for IT pros everywhere. Well, can you walk us through what the process is like when when someone decides they want to uh, do this? What's the best way to go about it? Well, one of the first challenges, if you're going to do it, is figuring out what the heck is on your network. That's much more difficult than you would think, mostly because devices don't just sort of raise their hand and say, this is what I am. So typically, you have to do some sort of fingerprinting of the devices. And there's lots of ways to do this. There are some ways that are can be a Intrusive, where there's lots of scanning to to figure it out. Uh, we all refer to it as, as fingerprinting, because what you're trying to figure out is from things about this device, like what are the unique characteristics that tell me that this is, uh, you know, a Sony television or a Vizio, or you know, that it's this particular model. That's what you want to know. What's on my network? Because if you can't identify, securing becomes very difficult. And how do I segment? How to put the cameras over here and the um, you know TVs over there if I don't even know which is which because they're just a bunch of dumb IP addresses. Um, so you've got some intrusive sort of uh, aggressive scanning methods. You've also got some more passive scanning methods. You could do things like DHCP gleaning, where it turns out the way a network device makes a DHCP request uh, is often pretty unique especially if you combine it with other things like uh, MAC addresses. So there are databases full of MAC address. Uh, I mean, there are folks who that's what they've done. They will go, they have like a whole run of MAC addresses that are assigned to a model of a particular device. And so that you can then take the MAC address and sort of make a guess. And if you combine it with DHCP information and maybe other information, that it's that has its 
kind of talks in the network, it reveals what it is. So like our company has a, um, you know, is able to, to get like 95% accuracy. Like other vendors can do this as well, trying to figure out what it is. Once you know what it is, then you can set up your network so that you have, again, different, you know, different VLANs, different sections of your network that are very limited. And there's no reason that the, you know, the things that are in the, that they call the hand scanners don't need access to anything else in the network. So you can really constrain what they can do. How do you make sure that you're not inadvertently introducing any sort of friction for your employees here? Well, that's where you need some sort of access, access control solution, because if you make this too manual, right, that there, there would be an approach where you just manually do this, you're going to introduce a lot of friction uh, because then, you know, that manual process is going to make it very difficult for everybody to log on. So you need some automation here. You need to be able to uh, set up your devices so that all your laptops and users, probably you want to use certificates, um, digital certificates that sort of, I, that, that do raise their hand and say, this is what I am. I belong here. And you can compare them to like Active Directory or Google Workspace or some sort of other LDAP directory so that all of your users just get on uh, invisibly. And so then it's IT's problem to worry about the, the devices. And ideally what you want is to be able to uh, do that fingerprinting and then have a uh, you know, an access control policy that says, you know, only devices of this make and model are going to be allowed and then the others won't. Or if I can't quite tell what you are, then I'm going to put you in a quarantine VLAN, which is, you know, very restricted. And then you can maybe handle that manually. But you really have to have a lot of automation to make this um, possible at all. Are, are there any common pitfalls that uh, that you can help people avoid here, m- mistakes people make when trying to set something like this up? To be honest, the biggest one we see is um, that people just think it's going to be hard and then they don't do it. The number of customers we talk to have, you know, very little segmentation at all is, is hot. Uh, the yeah. number of things that, you know, have wide access is much too high. So the, the main thing is you're going to need some sort of software solution. And the, probably the most common is people get things that are maybe more trouble than they're worth. They can nominally solve the problem, but in practice, the, it's so much trouble that they, uh, again, they end up simplifying because they can't enable simple policies uh, to do what they want. So the, 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 the thing that we would recommend to folks is to find a solution that is really low overhead that once you set it up, everything is just going to sort of happen in the background and there's not going to be a lot of maintenance um, on your part. We have found, you know, cloud-based solutions are, are usually going to be much lower maintenance in this regard than anything anything on-premises. That's Denny LeCompte from Port Knox. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Rob, it is always great to welcome you back to the show. Uh, we have seen several stories about um, folks going after power substations with uh, 
with guns and bullets and, and things like that. Um, in fact, as you and I are recording this, there were a couple of uh, gentlemen from Tacoma, Washington, who've been charged in an attack on a power substation. Uh, story seems to indicate that they were basically going for a misdirection for another burglary. But people look at this in the news and they see a pattern that people are going after these substations in ways they hadn't before. Uh, I wanted your insights on this. As, as uh, somebody in this critical infrastructure world, what's your take on what's going on here and the degree to which we should be concerned? Yeah, well, first of all, they're idiots. And uh, second of all, <laughs> the uh, the idea of people shooting at transmission equipment, power lines, et cetera, is old, right? It's not a new thing. Every utility, most utilities have to deal with that or dealing with people jumping across the fence to kind of steal copper out of substations to go sell for meth or crack or something. Like, it, it, it's honestly, like, I care a lot about the cybersecurity considerations. Um, those are more impactful. Those are more um, strategic. But everybody deals with idiots in the utility mm-hmm. industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, it may not seem like a fun topic, but it's a real one. And, and there's no joke when I say that. It's, that's actually a pretty common issue. Uh, and, you know, going back to the days of like even Metcalf when we had somebody take a 50 cal and try to strategically shoot out substations and transmission equipment. This has been happening for a while. Hell, if you go out in certain parts of the, the country, you'll find people do target practice against pylons and, and uh, transmission lines, as an example. Like, it's just really stupid stuff. And it causes a lot of money and cost to the utilities, which goes right back to the ratepayers. Uh, and so it's just a bad thing for everybody. Now, the reality is, I, I think some of this, you know, in this case, maybe misdirection, but some of the reportings that we're hearing has a very close tie to what we're seeing in a broader picture of kind of uh, misinformation and amplification and disinformation. Of, of conspiracy theories and so forth. I mean, there was a whole, like, 5G is going to, you know, load vaccines into your body and kill your kids, you know, kind of stuff. Uh, mm. and, and power utilities and power lines are very closely associated. Oh, look at that tower, and they're monitoring us. I mean, there's there's been uh, cases, I remember years ago, that it was required by regulation to put up cameras to monitor unmonitored substation equipment, right, just from a safety and environmental perspective, hey, utility, if it's, an, if it's an unmanned, I shouldn't say unmonitored, unmanned substation, like a distribution substation, put up a little camera to be able to remotely view it. You know, by, by regulation, you got to have positive control over it. Hmm. And then I remember folks looking at that going, that, that's the NSA and they're spying on us. <laughs> like going out and like tearing down the camera systems. Like what are you idiots doing? And so, right. you know, I don't want to, I don't want to position mental health as anything other than deserving attention, but some of this isn't mental health. Some of this is just, just instability by people staying on the internet too long uh, and, and diving into forums and so forth. So anyways, not, not to go on too much of a rant, but the reality is it costs a lot of money. That cost is borne by all of society. It's not a new issue, but I do think we're entering a new era of it where access to disinformation and misinformation and the amplification of it uh, is going to see utilities get targeted more as people associate big government utilities, 5G, you know, all this stuff together. Uh, it's an unfortunate uh, situation. I was looking at an article uh, from KIRO7, which is a local affiliate in Tacoma, Washington, and this line caught my eye. They said, the damage to the Tacoma power substations alone is estimated to be at least $3 million 
repairing a single damaged transformer could take up to 36 months. Does that track with your understanding? Yeah, depending on what was done, the cost could be on the low side. Um, it can very quickly go well above $3 million. Uh, hmm. But the time does seem to be a little on the high side. Um, but it, it's possible given supply chain issues. So normally people talk about replacing key transmission equipment taking six months. That's not entirely true. Uh, you know, I, I think people are a little sheepish to communicate the, the exact amount of time. But generally speaking, most of the transmission equipment that we rely on is not built in America anymore. And so you're relying on other countries, sometimes competitive countries, to resupply that equipment. And even if they're trying to be helpful, even if they're trying to work with you, that can be a nine to 12 month process. And then you got to talk about, you know, being able to transport this key transmission equipment, which is usually going to be done by rail. Uh, and that takes time. And so, you, yeah, I think nine to 12 months to replace equipment is reasonable. Uh, I would say, again, with the supply chain issues that we're having, I could easily see that reaching into 18 to 24 months. 36, I'd, I'd have to understand more about exactly what equipment was shot up and why they're estimating 36. But but again, when you're talking transmission equipment, uh, if, if you're talking like transformers and so forth at that level, you know, that transmission side of the house, that, that's a very long, very expensive process for sure. But it doesn't mean that the lights are going to be off for that long. Oh, no, no, no. So this is, again, something I think a, a lot of people misunderstand about the electric system is the electric system is an incredibly complex, probably the most complex system humans have ever built. And there's a lot of redundancy built into it. Now, that's hard to believe when we see things like outages in Texas or you hear about the impacts of cyber attacks. It's like, well, well, how can that be? Well, there are weaknesses in the system. And smart understanding of that system can kind of find those pressure points. Again, one of the concerns of about a cyber attack when we talk about like, oh, we deal with hurricanes all the time. The cyber won't be that big of a deal. Yeah, but hurricanes don't choose their targets and they're not strategic about it and they don't come back, you know, sort of twice and hit, hit all around the country at the same time. And so... Uh, cyber as a tool uh, can impact a heck of a lot more than than uh, weather and, and so forth. But weather and squirrels and idiots with rifles are a constant. And so it's a lower impact, way higher frequency reality for, for these utilities. But either way, going back to the discussion, the electric system itself, if you really don't know what you're doing, you would have to be astronomically lucky to be able to take down a decent portion of it. Because if a substation, as an example, goes down, we expect that to happen just from random things, if not weather events. So there's alternate routes. It's just like a, a, a network from a computer system perspective where there's different routes it can take across the environment. You might have localized outages. You might have a small town uh, that can't get power restored for you know a couple weeks uh, at a maximum, uh, but you're not dealing with months of outages, or you're not dealing with large portions of the electric system going down, unless someone is strategic and thoughtful and kind of knows where those pressure points are. All right, well, Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security 
by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester, with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by John Petrick. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.